0: Zechariah chapter 8, the coming peace and prosperity of Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly zealous or jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the Holy Mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, Will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, You who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for animal, and for him who went out or came in there was no peace because of his enemies, and I set all men against one another. But now, I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there will be peace for the seed, the vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts Just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another, judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against another, and do not love perjury. For all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every language Will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Amen. The prophet Zechariah from the preceding chapter, he rebuked them, rebuked the people in the first part of the chapter because of their trust in fasts and not trusting in righteousness. Well, he exhorted them to righteousness in verses 8 to 14 of the previous chapters, 7, 8 to 14. Exhorts them in righteousness, in practical, ethical righteousness. And otherwise, God will punish them. After the warning admonishment in the previous chapter, at the end of the chapter, 8 to 14, now he takes up this whole chapter, chapter 8, to encourage them, to encourage them with the hope of the future, the hope of peace, the hope of prosperity, the hope of God's presence, the hope of every blessing that God would give them, not only to the Jews, but also to Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, because of verses such as verse 22, 822. Many peoples and mighty nations will come, Jews and Gentiles. God's purpose is to save Some among both. Well, let's turn now and we'll focus on the first part of the chapter for the blessings that God promises. Verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. The word of God comes, And just as the word of God is a word of warning, here, though, it's a word of blessing, a word of hope. Because we know that the Lord of hosts, which is repeated twice in verses 1 and 2 and throughout the chapter, but in verses 1 and 2, God, who has powerful armies, will accomplish what he is about to say. He's causing the people of God to trust his word for his promises, for the good future, for the hope That is, before them. And in this declaration, verse 2, he starts by saying, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Well, who is the Zion? The Zion here means the people of God. Though it is the name of a mountain, one of the mountains of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of David, where David had his residence, King David did, it then, after becoming a name of the city, becomes a name of the faithful in the city, or faithful people generally, those who have faith. The scripture does this often, using the name of the city to describe the people of the city. Sometimes it's the people generally, and in these kinds of passages, It's the people specifically, meaning the redeemed, beloved people of God, those who are saved. And that is the case here. God has this exceeding jealousy for Zion. This is one Old Testament passage that uses the word Zion or one of the names of the city in this way. We see here, that this is the case. Let's also go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Where he's using the same terminology. Isaiah 1... And first, he rebukes them in verse 21. Rebukes the city by saying, How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. That's on the negative side. But then on the positive side, he says in verse 26, 26, Then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called you, the people, will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. And 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. There, Zion, the name of the city or the mountain, is now used for the people. And here, in this positive context, verses 26 and 27, the favored people of God, those who are graced with His salvation and repentance, redemption. This occurs as well in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, Galatians 6 and verse 16. Galatians 6, 16. And those who will walk by this rule Peace and mercy be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. Those who will follow the apostolic doctrine, he's saying, he pronounces a blessing on them, and he also calls them the Israel of God. Israel, though, has become the standard name for the nation. But here it is the redeemed people of the nation. Not just anybody, but the redeemed people of it. And that's how Zechariah is using the word. So context will determine whether we're talking about the literal city, literal mountain, all the people, or the wicked uh, among the people, or the righteous among the people. It will be the context that determines it. And since here in Zechariah 8.2, God has exceeding jealousy for her, it must be in the good sense. Why? Because this is the Lord like a jealous husband making sure that his wife is protected. A jealous husband making sure his wife is protected. It's not using the word jealousy in a negative context or in a context of punishment. Not punishment for Zion, but protection for Zion, like a jealous husband. The Bible does indeed use the word jealousy in a positive sense, sometimes, in reference to God's own people, sometimes in reference to God's own people in a positive sense. We find this in 2 Corinthians 11, 1-4, in the good and positive sense of God or the ministers of God to protect the church of God the, the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11:1 I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid Lest as the serpent deceived thee by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. The apostles' concern is a godly jealousy in order to protect the Bride of Christ, the Church of Christ, so that the Church might remain pure. Pure until presented to Christ. The same in Zechariah. But also, not only is he protecting Zion in Zechariah 8.2, he uses his jealousy against the people who hate Zion, redeemed Zion. God uses His jealousy not only to protect godly Zion, the redeemed people of God, but He uses His jealousy to inflict His wrath against those who persecute the people of God. That's why it says, Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. With great wrath. Our God is a jealous God, a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29. Our God is a consuming fire and a jealous God against our enemies. The specific person who will inflict this wrath against our enemies is Christ, according to 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1 chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Second Thessalonians 1, 3 to 12. This is Christ against our enemies. His jealousy with great wrath against the enemies of the church, the bride of Christ. Verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction... Those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end, also, we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every (coughs) desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, he'll come with mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to the enemies of the Church of Christ. In great wrath, like it says in Revelation six sixteen and 17, for great is the wrath of the Lamb, and who is able to stand before him? Zechariah 8 3. Thus says the Lord. Many of these sentences in this oracle in chapter 8 are prefaced with that phrase. Why? Once more, to highlight the fact that God said it, therefore, it's trustworthy. He doesn't lie, He doesn't renege, He doesn't change His mind, it will be fulfilled. The best example of that is Hebrews 6, 13 to 20, where the apostle speaks of two unchangeable things. That is the promise and the oath attached to the promise. Whenever God makes promises, it's true, it's reliable. But he also adds oaths or oaths to it in order for us to have greater confidence that it will indeed Be fulfilled. So don't take these expressions, thus says the Lord, lightly. It is the Lord speaking, so we must believe it. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. We have to hear it and then believe it. Verse 3 continues I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Why does he say, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem? Why return? Well, why did he part? Why did he separate from Zion? This is signified in the book of Ezekiel, the fact that he left in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 10, 10, 1, through 10, well, the whole, the whole chapter, practically. In Ezekiel chapter 10, there Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of God departing from the temple and moving away from the temple. Why did he see this vision of the glory of God being removed from the temple? because he was about to destroy the temple by means of the Babylonians. He was about to destroy them. Ezekiel is uh, a contemporary and eyewitness of the Babylonian destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, his whole kingdom. So this glory of God departed from the temple, signifying the fact that God left. God was about to destroy it. And then we pick it up in chapter 11, Ezekiel 11:22 11, to 25. Ezekiel 11:22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the city, from the midst of the city, and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So the vision that I had seen left me. Then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. This is the glory of God leaving the midst of the city and going over the mountain which is east of the city. Likely he means the Mount of Olives. It went from one to another, but now God's going to return because of faithfulness, because of the remnant and their godliness, he's going to return and he's going to dwell in the midst of the people. He's going to be dwelling in the midst of the people. So his personal presence is the assurance that he cares for them, that he loves them. His personal presence. The contemporary of Zechariah, Haggai, said similar words in in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. When the people see the rebuilding of the temple, and they see it in its initial form, They understand that it's nothing in comparison to the first temple that Solomon built. But then he encourages them in verses 4 and 5. Haggai 2, 4 and 5. But now, take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when, my, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. When God is among the people, they should not fear. And in this case, specifically the promise of the Spirit of God among them. This is what Zechariah is preaching as well. With the remnant, the godly remnant, God dwells in their midst. And when God does dwell in their midst, verse 3, then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Jerusalem or Zion will be called city of truth because truth characterizes the people of God. Not lies, not falsehood, not deceit, but truth. Lies characterize the devil and those who belong to the devil. John 8, You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. But because God is in their midst and God dwells in them and among them, the God of truth ensures that they have truth. That they love truth, they possess the truth. He is the God of truth, Isaiah 65, 16. Christ is the truth, John 14, 6, and the Holy Spirit is the truth, in John 14, 17. If Father, Son, and Spirit are truth, and the people of God have God in their midst, both dwelling in them and among them, then inevitably they're going to be dominated by the truth, the word of truth, the message of truth, the message of truth, Ephesians 1.13, the gospel, or Colossians 1, five and 6, word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is in their midst because the God of truth has made it known to them and the people believe it. It's also God's mountain. And because it's God's mountain, it's a holy mountain. It's a holy mountain because God is there. It's inevitable that if God is there, it is holy. It has to be holy because He is there. Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. And verse 3, Isaiah 6, 3, he says, One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is who God is. He is a God of holiness. But as well, We who are following Him are to be on the highway of holiness in the pursuit of the things of God. Isaiah 35, 8. Isaiah 35, 8. And a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way and fools... Will not wander on it. The highway of holiness is not for the unclean, not for the fools, but only for those redeemed by the God of holiness. Those redeemed by the God of holiness follow holiness. First Peter 1: 13 to 17. First Peter 1: 13 to 17. Therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. God is holy, therefore we should be holy. That's actually summarized in verse 16, 1 Peter 1.16, which quotes Leviticus 11.44-45. Holiness. Holiness characterizes wherever God is and wherever the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us it should not be unholiness or wickedness. Nothing profane is associated with God. Nothing. Unclean. Profane. Foolish. Associated with God. Well, when God is present to protect and punish enemies, and when God is present to dwell among us, give us His truth, give us His holiness, what What kinds of blessings do the people of God experience? Verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 describe living a quiet life, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Verses 4 and 5. That was taken from 1 Timothy 2 1 to 7. That is, our purpose as Christians is also to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We are not menaces, we're not criminals, we're not trying to be loud, boisterous people, obnoxious people to anybody. And this here too. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand, because of age. There we have the first blessing, old age. We know that it's a tragedy when men die when they're only 30, 40, 50 years old. Usually, when they end up being 70 or 80 years old, and even more than that, that's when we consider that people have had a blessed life, whether believers or unbelievers. Here, this is in the case of believers. Believers having longevity without being tormented without being persecuted without being put to death without diseases and anything else ravaging them they live to be a long time so long that they need to carry a staff to walk around in one sense it's a curse in another sense it's a blessing it's a curse because they don't have the feet of a youngster but They have lived a long life. They're 80, 85, 90 years old. So that's a blessing. And the sign of the staff is not necessarily a bad sign in that sense. That's what he's describing in verse 4. But on the opposite side, the youth, verse 5, And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. When boys and girls can play safely in the streets without fear of war, without fear of kidnapping, without fear of criminals, without any fear, with their parents and grandparents watching them on the porch. That's the blessing. To see energetic, joyful, innocent boys and girls. Innocent in that they're not committing crimes. They're not murderers and thieves. They are just playing with balls and bats and sticks. That's what they're doing on the streets. This blessing of peace is what God promises to His people. However, not everybody believes this, especially when they are in dilemmas. These people in Zacharias' day, they were in uh, a dilemma. Why? Because they were still under the yoke of the Persians. The Persian yoke was an easier yoke than the Babylonians, but it was still a yoke. They weren't independent. And their temple was being reconstructed, but it had not yet been fully finished. And because of that, those of us, and this happens to all of us, when we don't see the fruition of the Word of God, in the meantime, it's easy for us to lose track and to lose hope. So that reality is addressed in verse 6. Verses 6. To eight, The reality that we ought to have our sights on God's word because of who God is. God's word because of who he is. Verse six, our familiar expression. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight? declares the Lord of hosts. If it's too difficult, if this would be a tremendous miracle for this to happen in the sight of the remnant of this people, you few, you few that I preserved from Babylon and in Persia and brought back here, you people, is it too difficult? Is this going to be an astonishing miracle? Is that what you're thinking? If you're thinking that way, that is too difficult. Is it also too difficult in my sight, God's saying? It's too difficult in your sight, but is it too difficult in my sight, says God. This is a warning to men who look at the word of God through their own limitations and use their limitations to limit God. They use their own finiteness, their own weakness to weaken the power of God. We shouldn't do that. Why should we not do that? Well, didn't Genesis 1-1 say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Who else created the heavens and the earth? Who else is able to create the heavens and the earth? Isn't that the first miracle of the Bible? Genesis chapter 1? or sequence of miracles in Genesis chapter 1. If that's the case, God did it then, if he created, can he not recreate even if there's misery all around us or partial misery around us? Yes. Further, Genesis 18:14. Genesis 18:14. God said this to Abraham and in Sarah's hearing. Genesis 18:14 Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah, who was 89 years old, would be 90 up at the birth of Isaac. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. He promised it and then it happened. But closer to home in the time of Zechariah is Jeremiah. Because God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 32, and this prophet, Jeremiah, lived in the previous generation to Zechariah. And in chapter 32, Jeremiah was instructed to buy a piece of land in his native town. A piece of land. But the Babylonians were attacking and the Babylonians were decreed by God to own it for 70 years. So how in the world would Jeremiah or Jeremiah's descendants have possession of this piece of property? That's the dilemma. That's the question. So Jeremiah 32, 16 and 17. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch the son of Nariah, then I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. What did Jeremiah just do? He used the creation of the universe as his platform, as his premise to assert that nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is too difficult. Further, we see this in 26 and 27. Jeremiah 32 26. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And that's the same here. Nothing is too difficult, even in the time of Zechariah or in, in any future time. Nothing is too difficult. We do have an example. Of someone who did not believe God's word, and then someone who didn't believe God's word in the same context or same chapter. Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. When Gabriel, sent by God, the angel Gabriel, sent by God, went to Zacharias, the son of, or the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth of John the Baptist, Luke 1:18. What happened to Zacharias? and why? We may recall that he was struck with dumbness or muteness until the day that John was born. But why? Why did God curse him temporarily? Let's read Luke 1:18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. Then it tells us that Elizabeth became pregnant. And then we pick up in Luke 1, Luke 1, in verses 26 to 38, Gabriel visits Mary and essentially tells her that she too will miraculously conceive a son, Christ. And then what does she say at the end of it? Verse 38, Luke 1, 38. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me, according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She didn't object like Zacharias. She said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Does that mean she believed? Yes. Look at verse 45. 45. Elizabeth says this of Mary. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Elizabeth says it categorically. Blessed is she who believed. Mary believed. This is what God is trying to inculcate in the people in Zechariah uh, chapter 8. 8 verse 6 you must believe. Believe. He'll take care of you. He'll cause it to happen. And when it does happen, look at the blessing, how widespread the blessing is. Seven and eight. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. And I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. He is the one who is going to save them. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. He is going to originate it. That was Jonah 2.9. Salvation is of or from the Lord. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19:10 We love because he first loved us. First John 4:19. You did not choose me, but I chose you. John 15:16 In the same vein, Zechariah Zechariah in verse 7 says, "I am going to save my people." God is the savior not man. Where? From where? From the land of the east and from the land of the west. He will save them. He will deliver them. He will bring them back. Verse 8. And they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. They will live there peacefully, as he said in the preceding verses. And they will be my people and I will be their God. As he intimated also in the previous verses, especially verse 3. I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Here, he expands on that concept by saying they will be my people and I will be their God. This promise was given to them when they came out of the land of Egypt, but it was a promise on a condition. It was not going to be an unconditional blanket fulfillment with no expectation, no fruit, no obedience of the people. It's in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, 4 to 6. Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. If the people obeyed his voice, kept his covenant, though God initiates... God causes, God brings about salvation in us. It's not a powerless salvation. It's not an impotent salvation. It's not a weak and feeble salvation. It has power to bring about a result in the people. That's when they are truly said to be His people and God, their God. First Peter two, first Peter two verse, verses seven to ten. First Peter two seven to ten. He describes both believers and unbelievers, the elect and the reprobate, and what the elect receive from God, and how God possesses them. First Peter two seven. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That means that this entails Jews and Gentiles, the blessing that is around the world. People from around the world will belong to God. And we will say, you are my God. They will be my people. We will belong to him. Similarly, Zechariah 13:9. Zechariah 13:9. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, "They are my people." And they will say, the Lord is my God. That is the benefit. But what is characteristic of these people? It says in Zechariah 8.8, in truth and righteousness. In truth and righteousness. They aren't deceitful they aren't pretending. They are in truth, the people of God. Also, they are in righteousness. It's in truth because it's manifested in their obedience, in their holiness, in their righteousness. It's not a fake profession. It's a true profession. The opposite was true in Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, 1 to 5. Isaiah 48, 1 to 5. The opposite of what Zechariah is saying. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah. So that's true. They have the name Israel. Their bloodline is through the line of Judah. That's true who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is how they proclaim themselves. They call themselves after the name of the holy city. They call themselves Jerusalem. We are Jerusalem. We belong to God. They lean on the God of Israel, they lean on his name, but not in truth and righteousness. Verse 2, uh, verse 1. Now verse 3, I declared the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass, because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead Bronze, Therefore, I declared them to you long ago before they took place, I proclaimed them to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. It won't be that way when God works in Zechariah 8. Now, we will be the people of God, all of those who belong to him will be his people in truth, and righteousness. Truth and righteousness, both must be within the people of God. And one more place, this will be Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4, 417 to 24, 417. This I say therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given, them, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, We didn't learn Christ in this way, verse 20, in the wicked way. We learned him as having truth. Truth is in Jesus, 21, and that our life in Christ is a new life where we are renewed and transformed into the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That is now our pursuit, to live according to the will of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.